Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. It's Christmas Day. Just so that you're aware, there is a considerable amount of buildup and excitement in the Powell House as we move towards Christmas Day. It typically begins the weekend after Thanksgiving with a purchase of a Christmas tree. Our family goes to the outdoor Christmas tree sales locale near the Ellis Creek Bridge. And uh, we pick out a tree together while half of my kids play tag amongst the Christmas trees. The step is followed by tree home, leaving it outside in the back. Uh, yard in the stand, spraying it off with water, which is really great to get all the bugs off, and then letting it sit outside overnight. We bring it in the next day. Lights and ornaments go up on the tree. Lights go up on the house. This year, the kids did all of the lights in the front yard and the front porch. And Christmas music, uh, particularly Sojourn's Advent album, Sovereign Grace, uh, along with some American class, classic Christmas songs, accompany the tree and the lights and the ornaments. Uh, those of you who listen to Christmas tree or Christmas music year-round or before Thanksgiving, I don't want to say you're monsters, uh, but something's wrong with you. The, the daily Advent calendar takes our family worship through 24 days. Daily scripture readings, prayer, Christmas hymns, uh, fun family treats and activities. Then come the days and weeks of Christmas movies and Christmas cartoons. And with each successive step in this process, there's a buildup in the hearts and minds of my six children. A growing anticipation of Christmas Day, celebrating the incarnation and birth of the Son of God with the giving of gifts and the eating of Christmas meals with family and church members. And as we move towards Christmas Day, at least in our home, more wrapped presents begin to appear under the Christmas tree. And all of a sudden, my children, who regularly lose and then can't find their shoes or bags or jackets or what have you, uh, immediately turn into detectives who are now measuring and shaking and listening, weighing, holding up to the light their Christmas presents in an attempt to determine what they are days prior to Christmas. And again, as the time draws near to Christmas, anticipation, expectations, and excitement continues to dramatically increase in the hearts and minds of each of our children, culminating in this morning, Christmas morning. And the eager anticipation of promised gifts turn into the delight of promise fulfilled. Powell kids open gifts with squeals of happiness and excitement as the hope of desired gifts turn into the reality of gifts given and enjoyed. And then mom and dad spend the rest of the day cleaning the house. <laughs> December is a sweet time in the Powell house. And in Luke 2, we see eager anticipation turn to the delight of promise fulfilled. In particular, Simeon and Anna are two of God's old covenant saints who have longed to see God's salvation come through the promised Messiah. And they've been looking and watching and anticipating. And to their great delight, they both see the little boy Jesus as his parents bring him to the temple for the first time in his life, and they see God's salvation. God's saints wonder and rejoice as God's promises are fulfilled in their lifetimes. So two, two realities for us this morning, if you're keeping notes or taking notes, two realities. The first is this. First, 
The Son came to free us from the curse of the law. The Son came to free us from the curse of the law. The Son came to free us from the curse of the law. My oldest daughter asked me to repeat it 15 or 20 or 30 times, but I don't have time, nor do you. We'll have to stick with four, Grace. Secondly, the Son came to redeem us and to prepare us for the last day. The Son came to redeem us and to prepare us for the last day. Third time. The Son came to redeem us and to prepare us for the last day. All right, what's our context? The Old Testament. All of the Old Testament has been bearing down on this moment in redemptive history. Anticipation, expectation, hope, longing for salvation, longing for rest have all been intertwined in the hearts of God's people for hundreds of years, thousands of years, as they looked for the coming of the promised Son, the promised Messiah, the promised Savior. God's Old Testament people knew that the son of Eve would soon crush the head of the serpent, that Noah's son would bring relief from the curse and salvation through judgment. Abraham's promised offspring would be the one through whom all the nations would be blessed. The true Israel would be a light to the nations and enjoy God's presence and God's rest in God's promised place, that Judah's promised son would rule with the scepter. The promised son of David would forever sit on the royal throne and always be the priest king who would usher in God's kingdom on earth. During much of the time of the Old Testament prophets, the people of God are longing and looking for the promised servant of the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior. Even as they are languishing under the oppression of foreign rulers in exile because of Israel's unrepentant sin. The prophets speak of a child who will be born of a virgin, one born in Bethlehem who will have a prophet like Elijah declare the way for him. This promised son will be David's son and mighty God. The Davidic line will look dead, Isaiah says, a tree chopped down, only a stump. But from the stump of Jesse, God will raise up a new and better David who will usher in God's promised salvation. This Savior will bring a new covenant built upon a better priesthood with better promises. God will make His people obedient from the inside out. Righteousness will be the mark of His people. Salvation will not be attained by keeping the law, but being transformed by God, filled with God's Spirit, and given new hearts and new minds that desire to keep God's law. The promised Messiah will be the perfect Adam, the perfect offspring of Abraham, the perfect Israel, the perfect son of David, and he will be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He will be perfectly obedient, yet he will be crushed for the sins of others. He will know the joy of the Lord, yet he will be a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He will die for sinners, and yet he will live again to see his offspring. The Lord will crush him and vindicate him. All of these Old Testament promises, all of these wonderful promises are sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, and there's a heightened sense of Israel's worsening condition as you read the Old Testament. The nation is split into two. The Davidic kings are complete failures. God's Spirit leaves the temple in the book of Ezekiel. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah are conquered. The people are exiled to foreign lands. And even when God brings them back to the land, there is no hope that the people will change unless God moves in a miraculous way. The prophets repeatedly call the people to faith and repentance, but even then God's word stops. There are hundreds of years of silence from God. 
Roman rulers enter. There's no Davidic king. The Spirit of God has not returned to the temple. And there's no prophetic word. No leadership from God's king. No realization of God's promises of a Messiah. Not yet. And as the New Testament opens and the gospel accounts begin the story, after hundreds of years of silence, God speaks once again, now through his angelic messenger, Gabriel. Gabriel first appears to the Levite priest, Zechariah, telling him that this old man and his old barren wife, Elizabeth, will have a son. And this son will be the promised prophet like Elijah, who will be the herald for God's Messiah. And this, pro- this promised prophet is coming through the unlikeliest of ways. This Levite priest who should be the first to trust God's promises doubts God's word and is forced to be mute until John the Baptist is born. Gabriel then appears to the very young virgin Mary who is betrothed to Joseph. He tells Mary that she's favored above all women because she herself will bear the son promised to so many Old Testament saints, particularly King David, and his name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary and cause her to conceive the Son of God. Mary receives this news with humble faith. And Joseph, after his own angelic visit, visit, marries this young woman but does not pursue intimacy with her until after Jesus' birth. God's sovereign authority over the nations is revealed when he causes the Roman Caesar the ruler of the known world, to enact a census that will take Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, David's city, where God promised the Messiah would be born. While there, Mary gives birth to Jesus, and the angels announce this glorious news to shepherds who visit this baby king, the God-man, and give praise to God for all that they have seen and heard, which brings us to our text this morning. So the first point again is the son came to free us from the curse of the law. We'll look at verses 21 to 35. So I want you to notice the context of this event and the repeated focus that Luke gives to the Old Testament law. First, the majority of this section's event is occurring in the Old Testament temple. The locus or center of God's presence amongst his people. The foundation of the law itself. The Old Testament priesthood and Levitical sacrificial system allowed and enabled the people of Israel to be able to relate to God, to enjoy God's presence, because apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Apart from sacrifice, according to God's prescriptions, there is no presence of God. There's no relating to God, only just wrath. Perfect holiness, opposition. The law itself, the author of Hebrews writes, is grounded upon the foundation of the priesthood. So apart from God's provision of priests and sacrifices, you couldn't enjoy a covenant relationship with Yahweh at all. The temple is our context for the vast majority of the passage. Joseph and Mary bring the baby Jesus into the temple, but look how Luke describes their actions. Verse 21, so prior to entering the temple at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. Verse 22, and when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses. Verse 23, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Verse 27, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Five times in this passage, five times in seven verses, Luke refers to the Old Testament law given to Israel. In fact, Luke's emphasis is on Joseph and Mary keeping the law as they were loving and raising Jesus. So if you 
points that we need to take away from this. Why was Jesus circumcised? The Abrahamic covenant required physical circumcision of every son of Abraham. That's Genesis 17. So Mary and Joseph circumcised Jesus according to the commands of the Old Testament law. If Jesus was to be the faithful and perfect promise offspring of Abraham through whom the nations would be blessed and through whom all of God's covenant promises would be fulfilled, Jesus would need parents who would parent him in such a way that he fulfilled the law's demands. If Jesus was not circumcised, he would not be able to participate in the Passover meal, nor would he have been submitted as a man to the old covenant law in Exodus 12. And secondly, the law of Moses stated that Mary, because of her giving birth to a son, was ceremonially unclean for seven days. The parents were then to circumcise the boy, the son, on the eighth day. And then Mary was to remain away from holy things, including the temple, for an additional 33 days after she had given birth to Jesus. So at the end of those 40 days, she was to bring an offering for purification, a lamb and a turtle dove, or if she was poor, two turtle doves or two pigeons for a burnt offering and a sin offering. That's what the old covenant required. We see from this passage that Joseph and Mary are poor. They cannot afford a year-old lamb. What does the law allow for the poor? Two turtle doves or two pigeons, which is what they bring. After the giving of these sacrifices, Mary would be announced as ceremonially clean and atoned for, according to Leviticus 12, 1 to 8. And so what we see in verses 21 to 24 is a clear picture of Joseph and Mary faithfully submitting themselves to God's Old Testament law. Trusting in God's word revealed through Moses, even as their hope was ultimately in the little baby they cradled in their arms. The Old Testament law commanded certain steps for Mary's purification, which she obeyed, but her faith was ultimately in the God who would cleanse her. Not through the offering of pigeons, but through the promised son she held in her arms. Until the cross and resurrection, however, Joseph and Mary submitted themselves to what God had revealed and commanded through Moses. Even as they waited with eagerness and anticipation for what Jesus would do to save them and purify them from their sins. And third, Jesus' parents also consecrated Jesus, presenting him to the Lord as the firstborn of their family in obedience to Exodus 13, verse 23. The law of Moses commanded the consecration of the firstborn in each household. Why? In order to remind Israel that the Passover lamb took the place of each household's firstborn in Israel's deliverance from Egypt in the Exodus. So a brief, a brief note to, to parents. I want you to see that, that God, sovereignly, God sovereignly used weak, poor sinful parents, Mary and Joseph, to bring about the greatest salvation that all of creation could ever experience. Joseph and Mary trusted God's promises. They walked in faith-filled obedience to God's commands. And because of God's sovereign power through their small acts of faithfulness as parents, we have a Redeemer and a Savior in Christ Jesus who perfectly fulfilled the law so that we might enjoy the reality of salvation. That we might enjoy the hope of Jesus coming again for us. So, parents, I know I don't have to tell you, but I will. Your kids aren't Jesus. I know no one will argue with me there. But you can be, still be faithful as parents. Just like Mary and Joseph were faithful with Jesus, Mary and Joseph needed Jesus to die for them too. Poverty didn't keep them from obedience. Gossip and raised eyebrows from the community about this pregnancy didn't keep them from obedience. Youthfulness, because Mary was likely a young teenager, didn't keep them from faithfulness. They trusted the Lord by faith. They parented Jesus in light of God's good promises and commands. So let's follow their example as parents. Point our kids to the cross and to the empty tomb. 
and pray for God to save them soon. Luke shows us in this short little section that Jesus himself was the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, as well as the end goal or the terminus of the old covenant law itself. Jesus submitted himself to God's law so that through his perfect obedience, he might save those who stood condemned under the law because of disobedience. Every one of us here is a sinner. We have disobeyed God's commands. We have rebelled against His authority. You cannot please God and justify yourself through your adherence or obedience to the law. You cannot do it. If you're here this morning because Christmas is that time of year where you feel obligated to gather for a church service, we're thankful that you're here. But let me tell you this, you aren't made right with God because you are a good person or because you attend a church service a couple of times a year or because you obey some of the laws God has given in the Bible. The scriptures tell us that because of Adam's sin, we are all guilty from birth. We are born in Adam. And because each of us is born in Adam, we've been corrupted and enslaved by sin. Death and God's eternal judgment, Paul says, are the wages, the earnings of each of our lives apart from Christ. And Jesus is the free gift of God. Eternal life in Christ Jesus. Why? Why is Jesus salvation? Because Jesus perfectly obeyed and submitted to his heavenly Father. He submitted to the Father's will. He submitted to the Father's commands throughout his life so that the righteousness that he earned through his work would be given or credited to us by faith alone. Apart from our doing works of the law or being able to keep the commands of the law in our own strength, we need someone to obey for us so that we would be considered righteous and we need someone to bear God's wrath in our place because we are disobedient. The scriptures clearly teach us that Jesus accomplished both for us. His active obedience in obeying the commands of the Lord, his passive obedience in obediently submitting unto death under God's wrath. Paul writes it this way, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed by everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who has hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's Galatians 3, 10 to 14 and Galatians 4, 4. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, has obeyed where the first Adam failed. While we were born spiritually dead and condemned before God because of the disobedience of our head, Adam, we who are in Christ have now been raised to new life, justified before God because of the obedience of our new head, head the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Christ has fulfilled the demands of the law, endured the curses of the law, brought to fruition the promises of God made to Abraham for our benefit. We who have trusted the Son of God incarnate, Jesus, are now children of Abraham, not on the basis, not on the basis of how well we keep the law, how well we do on Christmas morning getting to church, but upon the basis of Christ's perfect record in keeping the law. What I hope this does for you who are in Christ is that it allows you to exhale a little bit 
just to remember my position with the Lord it isn't kept by me my position with the Lord wasn't started with me started by me it won't finish because of me I'm accepted because of Christ I'm loved because of Christ particularly when you're not doing well so that you know I'm in Christ he is my hope he kept the law I'm hidden in him Christmas should allow us to exhale a little bit exhale Christ lived and died on our behalf Christ crucified and resurrected for sinners is the foundation of our salvation. And because we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we now strive to obey God's commands. Because He has transformed us through the work of Christ, applied to us by the Spirit. We've been given new hearts and new minds. We've been given the Spirit. We submit ourselves to the law of Christ because we love God and are loved by God in Christ. So, beloved, you don't start your salvation by faith alone in Jesus alone and then begin to trust that you're kept in the faith by your performance and keeping the law. The same Jesus who saved you and regenerated you on the day of your conversion through faith alone will himself also sanctify you and keep you firmly to the end by his spirit through faith alone. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let your good works demonstrate that you are genuinely in the faith. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Amen. Because it is God who works powerfully in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So again, as I said, your status before God is grounded solely in Christ alone. Your status before the Father isn't won or lost because of your ability to keep the law. Prior to Christ, the law terrified us because we could not keep it. It only condemned us. And while, Christian, you might be terrified by your credit card bill after Christmas, you should not be terrified by the law because Christ kept it on your behalf. Your status is that of an adopted son. Your status isn't won or lost because of you. You were delighted in by God because the Son of God stepped down from heaven, humbled himself by taking upon flesh, submitted himself willingly to death under God's wrath so that you might never endure it. And he was vindicated by God and raised by the Spirit for your justification. Christ kept and fulfilled the law perfectly to win you to God. Keep trusting this glorious Christ to whom the law dimly pointed. Christ alone provides our purification, not two pigeons. Christ alone provides our circumcision of heart. The law cannot do that. Christ alone provides our eternal inheritance. An inheritance is something that you are given, that you don't earn. Someone else earns it for you. Christ earned your eternal inheritance, and the Spirit is the seal of your future inheritance. Christ alone provides our justification before God. Christ alone provides our righteousness before God. Christ alone provides our redemption from the curse of the law. And all of it is possible because the Son of God, in all of His glory, receiving unending worship and praise from angelic creatures, the one through whom the world was created and through whom the world is sustained, that Son stepped down from heaven and took on flesh. 
and was dependent upon his own creatures in Luke 2. Ultimately, so that we would all become completely dependent upon him by faith alone. The Son of God came in the flesh to accomplish his promised plan of salvation. And for that on Christmas, we rejoice. All right, second point. The Son of God came to redeem us and prepare us for the last day. This is verses 21 and 25 to 38. I'll read it again. Verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And as his father and his mother marveled at what was said before him or about him, and Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Simeon now enters the Luke 2 scene. We don't know much about Simeon, but he clearly functions as a prophet. He was likely an older man, from the text, though there are clues. But Luke tells us that Simeon was a man upon whom the Spirit rested which is extremely unique for Old Testament saints. Remember our time in Acts, the Spirit has not yet been poured out. That's Pentecost at the inauguration of the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit would come upon not all believers, but upon particular people at particular times for particular purposes, especially prophets, priests, and kings. So it seems likely that Simeon was a prophet, and he certainly speaks prophetically over the baby Jesus. The Lord had revealed to Simeon that he would have the great joy of seeing the Savior before he died. The same Messiah who was promised by the Old Testament prophets for hundreds of years. The Spirit reveals to Simeon that this little child is the promised Savior and Simeon is overcome with joy and thanksgiving. Can you imagine Joseph and Mary's surprise? Luke notes it. They marveled at what was said about him. But can you imagine Joseph and Mary's surprise when this unknown man runs up to the temple, uh, in the temple, runs up to them, tells them his story, and then asks to hold the eight-day eight day baby, Jesus. You know, you're always like suspicious back there. I know that the Campbell's back there with Ace. It's like eight days in, and it's like, ah, I don't know you. <laughs> you're not going to hold my baby. But read what Simeon says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon is able to say, my eyes have seen your salvation because his eyes have seen Jesus. When you see Jesus Christ, you see God's promised salvation. Turn your eyes upon Jesus is a hymn that we sing. Because when you turn your eyes upon Jesus, you turn your eyes upon salvation. There is salvation in no one else. Jesus alone should be the object of your hope. The Jesus who endured the cross and who left the tomb must be the focus of your gaze. We must always, always, always fix our eyes upon Jesus. How do we fix our eyes upon Jesus? 
by fixing our eyes upon his word. He is our salvation and our prize. But the spirit-inspired Simeon doesn't stop there. Simeon continues. Jesus is the salvation that God has provided, not only for ethnic Israel, but also for all the nations and peoples. And again, this, this idea is coming from the Abrahamic covenant. The promised offspring through whom the nations will be blessed. That's Genesis 12, Genesis 15. You've got to read a lot of the Bible before you see the fulfillment. But you can't forget the promise. Simeon picks up on the themes, not only of Abraham's promise, or the promise to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, but then he picks up on what the prophet Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 49, 55, and 60, because Isaiah has in mind the Abrahamic covenant as well. The promised servant of the Lord in Isaiah will be the ideal and true fulfillment of Israel, the true offspring of Abraham. This promised king of Israel that was promised to Abraham will, as we heard Jake preach two, three weeks back in Isaiah 49, bring Israel and Jacob back to him, save them from their sins, and be a light to the nations. Isaiah 55 speaks of God's intention to save the nations through this suffering servant Israel, who will bear our iniquities and by whose stripes we will be healed. In Isaiah 60, the prophet speaks of the future glory of Israel. The future glory of Israel. What does Simeon say? And for glory to your people Israel. Isaiah 60, the future glory of Israel, who will be the light and glory of God, and the nations will see and come to the light of Israel. Like Simeon's pulling this language nearly straight from, exactly, from Isaiah 60. In fact, in Isaiah 60, the Lord promises that the sun will no longer be the source of light by day or the moon as the source of light at night. The Lord himself will be their everlasting light as all of God's people will be righteous and possess the land forever. That should sound... Christian because John the Apostle John says the same thing in Revelation 21 all of the people are gathered in the holy city there is no sun there's no moon God will be the light God will be the temple Jesus will be there so Simeon John they've read Isaiah well what Isaiah pointed to in Isaiah 60, Simeon now sees in part in Luke 2. Jesus Christ is the salvation and the glory of Israel and the promised light of revelation to the nations. God has kept his promises. He has kept his promises. You should know God's promises so that you can believe them and so that you can have confidence that, that the God who has kept all of his promises in his word from start to finish, will keep his promises to you in Christ. But Mary must hear the hard news. Jesus will bring division. God the Father has point, appointed the Son of God, her Son. This, this baby that she holds, she hears, is appointed for the falling and rising of many in Israel and for the sign of God's saving activity in the world. I mean, just as a parent, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of my kids being divisive or being the source of division. Certainly not when it's bad, but even when it's good division, my heart hurts for them. Why? Because harsh words come, opposition comes, Mary's hearing, hey, your son, that little baby that's so precious right now, he's going to be the source of division in Israel. He is appointed for the rising and falling of many in our nation. People will rise and fall on the basis of their relationship to this son, Jesus Christ. They will either fall because of their disobedience and rebellion and break themselves against the promised cornerstone, Jesus, 
or they will humble themselves in obedient submission to the promised King and Savior and God will exalt them with Christ. This good division that Jesus will bring, the rising and falling that centers on him alone, will come at great cost, Simeon tells Mary. It will be a sword that pierces through her soul. The Lord often causes people to exceptionally difficult ministries. Some of you are suffering for the sake of Christ. Some of you are suffering because you're trying to be a faithful parent. Some of you are suffering because you're trying to be a faithful spouse. Some of you are suffering just because you're trying to be a faithful Christian in the world, in whatever context it is. And the fact that there is just tremendous suffering in your life does not then mean that you are being disobedient. It should be a time for honest reflection and asking the Lord. But Simeon tells Mary, years before, a sword is going to pierce your soul because of this son. I don't want to gloss over that. Jesus, even for his own mother, will bring suffering. Faithfulness to this son will bring suffering in this life. And as we think about it, we see at various times, Jesus will say and do and endure unexpected things. While Jesus will acknowledge his earthly family and his mother, he'll also broaden his family to include all those who hear and believe and obey. Like, who is my mother? Who is my brother? The one who obeys. I mean, that's going to sting Mary a little bit. You know, it stings when your, parents, when, when your kids get married. You know, your daughters choose some other guy. You know, that'll sting a little bit while there's still joy. It's going to sting Mary a little bit because her special role as, a, as his earthly mother is clearly relativized. And it's clearly temporal. And of course, Jesus will go to the cross. That'll pierce the soul. He'll be betrayed by his close friend Judas for money. He'll be abandoned by most of his disciples. He'll be denied by Peter, his most ardent follower and the de facto leader of the disciples. He'll be falsely accused by the religious leaders who should have been the first to embrace him and joyfully submit to him. He'll be mocked, mocked by the false king of Israel, Herod, and he's the, right, he's the right king. He'll be condemned by a cowardly Roman governor for the sake of political expediency. Jesus will then be beaten by the Jews and by the Romans nearly to the point of being unrecognizable with the flesh of his back opened up by cat of nine tails. He'll carry his own cross, the chosen instrument of his torturous death, to the place of his torturous death. But he won't be able to carry it all the way because of being beaten so badly. He'll then be nailed naked to a cross between two thieves as Roman soldiers gamble over his clothing to hang until he dies from asphyxiation. And Mary will be there the entire time. a sword will pierce through her soul. But it will be purposeful. It won't be a sword will pierce through your soul and it will, it's just what it is. It'll be meaningless. No, uh, a sword will pierce through your soul as this boy divides and saves and reveals hearts and redeems his people. It's purposeful suffering. Your suffering is purposeful. As was Mary's, as was Jesus's. He suffered in order that he might save a people for himself in obedience to the Father. We see, we see that Jesus loves his mom in John's gospel, Jesus cares for his mother even as he's dying on the cross, entrusting her care to his disciple John, 
telling John, hey, this is your mother. Hey, mama, this is your son. I'm going to the father. You, uh, you mothers will understand it. You don't have to be a mother to feel it. Mary's heart will be broken and her soul pierced by what her baby will have to do in order to redeem her. Can you imagine it? If Mary was the only person who had ever lived, Jesus would still have to go to the cross. And he went the distance. He endured the cross. He despised its shame in order to redeem us, the church, from our sins. Simeon is telling Mary, get ready, because this redemption is going to be costly. This redemption will not be unlike God's past acts of deliverance. There will be suffering and death. But through the work of this Savior, the hearts of all men will be revealed. And it's at this point that Anna appears, prophetess, our daughter's namesake. A woman who has been a prophetess, who has lived in the temple for decades. Uh, Luke's description of her age is hilarious. I told my wife that I was going to start using it and describing her. It was like she was very old with many days. It's like, it's Hebraic. It's, you know, just... Strongly emphatic how old this woman was. And for roughly eight-ish decades, she spent her time worshiping the Lord after losing her husband, worshiping the Lord, fasting, praying in anticipation of the Messiah. I pray for a day, and then I get discouraged when I don't, I don't see the answer. And I'm like, how long, oh Lord? I've been praying for 12 minutes. <laughs> This sister is faithful and sustained by the Lord for decades of prayerful anticipation. When she sees Jesus like Simeon, she can't help but shout and thanksgiving and praise. She speaks prophetically over the Son of God with thanksgiving, speaking of the promised redemption that this baby boy would soon bring to Israel. Redemption, the promise of being a light to the nations, the promise of being God's glory upon Israel, the promise of ushering in the new creation that is marked by righteousness and rest with God, the promise of dividing sinners and saints, the promise of revealing and exposing the hearts of men speak both to the Son's first advent and to His second advent. He came the first time to accomplish our redemption to invite sinners to repent and be reconciled to God, to usher in God's kingdom. The time and of grace and redemption is now. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus will come again soon, but it will not be to offer a new redemption, but to bring judgment and to usher in the fullness of our present redemption. Christians say, trust the Lord Jesus and come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Christmas is a wonderful time to remember that we are here to give thanks and to celebrate not only that there was a baby, but that baby became a man, a perfect, faithful prophet, priest, and king, a perfect representative for us before the Father, a perfect substitute under God's just wrath for our sins. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. God has passed over his people and cleansed us by the blood of the lamb of God because Jesus was our penal substitute under God's wrath. Jesus was raised on the third day, defeating death and sin, being vindicated by God. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is the promised Davidic king and lion of Judah. He is the lion and the lamb. We give thanks this Christmas as we do every Lord's Day that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us in order to redeem us from the curse of the law, to redeem us from sin and death, to redeem us from the power of the devil. And with Simeon and Anna as our examples, we must give thanks, beloved, that our salvation is based solely upon the work of Christ. His work is complete, it is total, it is effectual, it is perfect, and it is yours in him. His work to redeem us from our sins is complete, it is finished, he cried from the cross. 
Like Mary, we must recognize that Jesus brings the right kind of division, division between God and the world. We, can rec- we must recognize with Mary that loving Jesus and trusting Jesus will lead to suffering in this life, even a suffer- kind of suffering that would kill us. But God will sustain us. A new creation is coming soon because God has shown his light through the true Israel. He is drawing all people to himself, all nations, through his son. So this Christmas, rejoice that the son has come. Rejoice that the son is coming again. Rejoice that the son has accomplished your salvation, beloved. Rejoice that the son has loved you and continues to love you because of his perfections, not because of your lovability. Praise the Lord. Rejoice that you have an advocate and a mediator, a representative in heaven who is not dead, but who enjoys an indestructible life. And his indestructible life will be yours at the resurrection of the dead. Since Jesus' life can't be destroyed, literally, he can't die again, glorified, if he can't be destroyed, Neither can his priestly work in mediation for you. He is always working on your behalf. Rejoice that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ this Christmas. Nothing can separate you. Your sin can't separate you. Your suffering can't separate you. A lonely Christmas can't separate you. Hardship can't separate you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ this Christmas or any other day. May God help us to rejoice because our Christ has come. He has won and he is coming again soon for those he loves.